things uh, this week, particularly um, Wednesday night regular midweek service, regular in the sense that we will continue the uh, question and answer series. And then the real treat to Wednesday nights has been the uh, children doing some baking with their teachers, and they're doing a little program called We Can Bake a Difference, and uh, they're preparing some um, baked items you can get after service for a donation to the ministry of an, uh, uh, of an orphanage in India. So uh, let's see, they've got two more weeks of that left. So that's Wednesday night, Thursday, National Day of Prayer. And our church will be open from 7 in the morning till 8 in the evening. If you want to find some time to come by, we'll have a prayer guide out in the lobby as you come in. You come in here and pray, sit or at the front, do as best suits your need in your time. Uh, but if, if you're not able to come, we hope you'll certainly participate in praying for our nation on Thursday. I'm sure you'll hear, hear about it through some other outlets as the week goes on, particularly Christian radio stations and TV stations. And then next Sunday uh, is homecoming. Well, that's always something to look forward to. So a homecoming service next week. There are no Bible study fellowships next Sunday at all, morning or evening. And uh, the morning service will start at 10. And then following the uh, service, the covered dish lunch. So folks are invited to bring uh, some of their favorite items to share with that. And uh, that'll be a busy enough day for sure. And then also let you, to remind you or let you know, we do not have any Bible study fellowships in the evening in May um, because of other events that are happening primarily. So if you, want, if you really want to get a hold of a morning Bible study, I would encourage you the second week that you may want to join the morning Bible studies. Uh, Jim York and Lee Falk teach those upstairs, and uh, those are primarily adult Bible study groups. So we'll pick back up everything in normal schedule on June the 4th, the first Sunday in June, and uh, continue to work our way there. But May is a busy enough month. There's lots of exciting things happening. So make sure you have one of the weekly connects to get those things in your calendar and your planning. And uh, we hope it will be a, a great blessing for you. Uh, I won't take the time now to go over it, but there's announcements in here for the veterans of our church. Uh, announcement about a parking lot, some parking lot work that's going to be done in the next couple of weeks and also a help with a need they have at Northern Guilford High School. So you can see those things in there, and um, you'll be caught up on everything for the most part. Well, I've got a short lesson planned tonight. Aren't you glad? Because I knew this would take a little bit of time, so we're just going to go through some things pretty quickly and uh, try to finish out uh, pretty close to 7 o'clock. Father, thank you for our time. I pray that you'll bless these children, bless their families as they continue in our church ministry. Thank you for the teachers and those who work so diligently with our young people. I thank you for the impact they have on those young lives, and I pray that you'll bless um, uh, those programs as they continue. And I pray that you'll bless our time this evening as we can conclude now this study, and we thank you for what we've learned and what we've been reminded of, and I pray that you'll bless our evening for all the things we'll, we'll do, and bless those classes, bless our fellowship afterwards, and uh, may you be honored as we look forward to great things, part of our church planning and, and events, and we pray that there'll be, um, just have your hand of blessing on them. Pray that you'll um, work, work through us as we would serve you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we've, um, I want to review a little bit tonight and go over a couple of things to remind you again, the church history section we covered way back in the latter part of last year took us through the early centuries of Christianity, really through that first thousand years. And the church begins, of course, in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, and from there, Pastor Paul covered 
a little bit, touched on a little bit of that this morning, with some, with a little more detail about the Apostle Paul particularly. But it begins in, in that first century, of course, through the, through the words of Christ, through the commitment of the apostles, through the work of planning churches and spreading the gospel message throughout um, the uh, eastern part of the Mediterranean to begin with. And, of course, the Apostle Paul takes the gospel then up into uh, Asia Minor and then eventually over, as, as he covered this morning, over into Europe there at Greece in Philippi and, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Thessalonica and Berea and Athens, Corinth, lots of places, lots of those history things are part of that. Eventually, as the gospel spreads, particularly through Europe, but also into Asia Minor, Christianity found great strongholds through the uh, Mediterranean region. And in time, and it takes several centuries, but in time, the Roman Catholic Church will formulate itself into a... Um, uh, into a, you know, a more structured organization, centered, of course, in Rome. The Eastern Orthodox Church will do something similar. They will organize, and uh, their seat of power uh, will rest in the eastern part of the Mediterranean. The Byzantine Empire kind of captures most of that region. And, and pretty much that's what Christianity was for, for centuries, uh, the Empire of Rome and the Eastern Empire um, together were the political and the religious seats of much of that part region of the world. And as time would develop, those two would separate so that the Eastern Orthodox Church gets its own identity there in the year 1054 is when the formal division happened. It had been happening uh, long before that, but it finally happened then. And then you, you go about 500 years before the next big things happen. The Protestant Reformation under um, several reformers, Martin Luther in Germany, um, Jan Hus in Eastern Europe, what we call today Prague. Um, you have uh, Zwingli in Switzerland, uh, in Geneva, particularly in Zurich. Uh, there was a lot happening. The Protestant Reformation brought a whole a whole another level of discussion about the doctrines and teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. A few years later, the Church of England will separate from Rome. You know, you already had this big separation happening on the continent, and the Lutherans would separate from that, the Reformed churches. In Scotland, you had the Presbyterian Church start as a separation. And then in England, the time came when Henry VIII separated England from the Church of Rome. It wasn't a religious decision. It was more of a political decision. But it did create a church in England that was under the authority of the king, something England had never known before. And it would spend a couple of centuries ironing out the details. Um, and um, it, would not be a, it would not be done without much violence. I mean, there, was a, there were executions. There were imprisonments. There would eventually be a civil war in England in the mid-1600s that was all the result of what happens to England. Does it become Catholic again, or does it stay Protestant? So those three divisions sort of begin the discussion that we talked about. We particularly focus on what the events of England, because there's where the, the discussion takes our direction of the path, as we've talked about from the Church of England, 
And in the, by the time you get through the 1500s, the reign of Queen Elizabeth, um, and into the reign of James I in 1603, you have England now still having some pretty hard divisions among the people. Uh, some who wanted to remain an even stronger Protestant nation, meaning anti-Catholic, and others who were just as equally committed to making England Catholic again. And that tug of war would, would pull England in many directions, uh, even through several monarchs. And what happened was there were some in the English church, the Church of England, who said, we will not follow this Church of England. We don't like its doctrine. It's still too Catholic. We don't like its structure. We don't like the imposition of the king being in charge of the church. And King James was particularly fond of that position. He exercised it with great authority and great, and great power, imprisoning and executing people who took such a position often. So the English separatist church, uh, really not an organized function of Christians, just some people who said, we don't want to be a part of the church. But not to be a part of the Church of England meant you were an outlaw to the king and to country. And so many of those English separatists left and would go to Holland and find a place there where they could have some safety. And there in Holland, they continued to discuss what are the doctrines we believe, what are the practices we will follow. And it's there that we would see a group that would develop that we might, at least in time, would call Baptist origins. They didn't call themselves Baptists. That wouldn't happen for another 30 or 40 years. Uh, but they were beginning to mull over the ideas of what would become the doctrine of Baptist in years to come. Uh, uh, one group of them would come back to England and reestablish a congregation there in 1612, the first English. And I'm going to use the term Baptist in quotes because they, they didn't call themselves Baptist. We only have the advantage of history to look back and say, well, there's where it really began. Uh, Thomas Helwes was a ordained priest in the Church of England. He, had, he took his, his learning and his understanding and his, uh, his commitment to the Scriptures and, um, and uh, led that group as they started. However, he, was, he would soon be found and arrested and imprisoned, and he would die in prison in 1616. Some of those groups left, New England, left England for New England, of course, coming to America. Uh, we think of the pilgrims first. They indeed were separatists. And they came to America. We think of that, that group that came over in 1620, and we celebrate them in November. Um, but there were others who would follow. The group that came in 1620 were committed to the Church of England. They were willing to be Church of England in doctrine. They used to like to be Church of England in practice. So they carried the doctrine with them, but tried as best they could to leave the king behind and set up their own congregations. Good things we could say about them, but again, they were imperfect people too, trying to sort out a lot of important details. Eventually, Baptists do begin to come over to the New England area and establish congregations there within communities, beginning in Rhode Island, but also working their way into uh, other regions of the eastern coast of the colonies. So that by the mid-1600s, you've got some sparks of the Baptist movement, as they were now starting to call themselves, Baptist. Uh, a distinction that, would, that carried several important uh, positions with them, we'll mention here in a moment. Uh, that group, several decades later, would form the first Philadelphia Baptist Association. But here in America, too, there were some who were discontent with the churches in America. 
They were, they were too, um, too much like the Church of England or too much like the Catholic Church or too much like the Lutheran Church. They were called the established churches. And in America, there were those who said, well, well, here we are in America, but we don't like the church options we have either. We'll separate ourselves. Some of those particularly took on then the, the role of Baptist. And so when you read through the history, you'll, you'll for several decades, and even in some places today you hear this conversation, they were called separate Baptist. They were following Baptist doctrine, but they had separated from the other churches in America. From that early uh, group of separate Baptists, you begin to turn decade after decade and see things happen with the organization of the Baptists here in the colonies and eventually in the states, of course, once the War of Independence is over. So you had the, uh, the separate Baptists who came to the south, the southern separate Baptists, and uh, William Scriven, who came to South Carolina, Paul Palmer, who came from Virginia down to North Carolina and established churches along the eastern uh, part of our, of our state now. And then... In 1755, Shubal Stearns comes to central North Carolina in what was then Guilford County, but it was a lot bigger county then, in uh, Sandy Creek area and started a Baptist church there, which became the mother church to many other um, um, churches in North Carolina, Virginia, and Georgia. As churches were established, they started, too, to form associations. Charleston Baptist, of course, in South Carolina, Sandy Creek here in North Carolina were the two dominant ones. Um, of that time. Eventually in 1830, again, you flip a, several decades to get to North Carolina Baptist Association in its origin. Eventually the Southern Baptist Convention would be established in 1845 uh, down in Atlanta, Georgia. It's founding there. And then uh, a few decades later, the Piedmont Baptist Association, which is still in operation today uh, here in this particular area of North Carolina. So we follow that. We looked last week a little bit some of the events in the people of the 1900s. Baptists really have found themselves in quite, quite an um, influential position compared to where they started. Um, today, the number of Baptists in America numbers, of course, in the tens of millions. And it does uh, ring true that there are Baptists in all parts of the country. Um, that uh, there are churches, again, some places more populous than others, but there are Baptist congregations all throughout the country. And when you think about Baptist churches, there are multitudes of them, right? Many of us would know names like Primitive Baptist, uh, you know, or some s s uh, certain descriptors like that, Independent Baptist. There's associations for all of them. Uh, and uh, there's groups and organizations. We're, of course, the most familiar probably with Southern Baptist. That's still the largest um, uh, non-Catholic association in our country. And so very influential positions in communities and in other realms of life, which has been good. We've talked about the fact that Baptists established many colleges, many K-12 through schools, um, and, and are still doing so. Uh, I know of one church in our triad area here that is uh, preparing to open a school starting 2024, uh, Baptist Church. And so it is still happening, and then Baptists are still moving forward and uh, training and teaching young people and training and preparing young people even for the ministry uh, through the seminaries. The Southern Baptists particularly have six seminaries, one here in North Carolina in Wake Forest, uh, north of Raleigh. But also um, uh, other colleges and other seminaries that are training from a Baptist perspective, and you'll find them all over the country, 
uh, in many ways. Um, one of the things that's distinguishable, I've, I've stayed away from this discussion until now. I just want to kind of tag it on. We, won't spend, we will not spend the time it's due, but I want to use some of these labels as a way to identify why churches use these titles. If you ride around Guilford County, particularly if you work your way into Rockingham County, you'll find this true. And if you work your way to some, more, some of the rural areas of our state, you will find some of these terms used in church signs even. Um, so I want to distinguish these terms and how they're used or maybe how they're identified. There are two primary doctrines within the church as a whole, the Christian church as a whole, and it's true within Baptist distinctions also. One doctrine is called the doctrine of the general atonement. It's a real simple thing to explain, but boy, the, the details is where it gets muddy. The doctrine of general atonement is easily stated, meaning that the death of Christ on the cross was intended to be a general atonement for anyone who put their faith in Christ. It's open to all. Right? And, and I hope that rings, that sounds familiar in your ears, because here at Gospel Baptist Church, we'd be considered a general atonement Baptist church. Now, we don't have the name general in our, you know, we're not gospel general Baptist church, right? Um, there are some organizations, but you have to go typically more north of us, maybe even up to the Great Lakes area, to find churches and uh, organizations there that will use some of these terms. But again, they're used, I, I paint with broad brushes. These, these churches, again, as we are, would be considered general Baptist churches. In our area here, you're more likely to use the, see the word missionary. I would guarantee you've probably passed some churches that have the word missionary there. At one time in our congregation's history, for a brief while, we had the name missionary in our name, but that goes back many decades. Missionary, again, hear the, hear the word. It's a familiar word to us. Missionary, those who go out and sing the gospel as a mission. Free will Baptist, that's not their only distinction, but it is one of the things that distinguish free will Baptist that they also believe in a general atonement. And sometimes the term regular Baptist, again, that's a term you're here, a lot more likely here in the north than you are here in the south, um, a regular Baptist church. You know, what's the opposite of a regular Baptist church? I, I don't know. Are you an irregular Baptist church? I don't, it's kind of an odd term. Um, the term, though, that probably carries the most theological distinction to it is a term at the top, Arminian. It's probably not a term many of us run across on a regular basis. It's because of the, the teaching of this general atonement was put forth by a man named Arminius many centuries ago. And uh, it was, again, one of those doctrines that sort of met opposition here and there and some acceptance. But basically, the general atonement just, again, says the death of Christ was for all who believe. I, th I personally think there's a lot of biblical evidence for that, Right? Whosoever will, of John 3, 16, Jesus said, I would that all men would come unto me. You know, the, you just can't get away from that word all or the implication of everyone. The gospel is open to everyone, the doctrine of general atonement. The other doctrinal path that the Christian church in general and some Baptist churches would follow would be the doctrine of limited atonement. Limited atonement says that indeed Christ died on the cross for the sins, but not of everyone, the sins of an elect few, relatively speaking, the, the numbers, right? 
So the doctrine of limited atonement says you may have already been selected to be saved, and maybe you weren't. That changes dramatically how you present the gospel, I think. If you present the gospel from a limited atonement, you're presenting it as a proclamation. We're here to proclaim the good news of Christ dying for those who have been elected to be saved. That's the only, that's the only thing you can say. It's a proclamation. From the general path of atonement, the gospel is an invitation. It's open to all. So you see where this, this kind of divides at a pretty important area, the doctrine of limited atonement. This was a doctrine put forth by John Calvin, one of the men we talked about back in our church history, and is known often as Calvinism, or a Calvinist perspective, which promotes the idea that that people have been uh, foreordained to be saved. Again, this is, we're giving us a few minutes. This is a huge topic. If you want to know some more about it, there I promise you there's plenty of websites and books and authors you can find about this. And there are some Baptists in both camps, for sure. Um, I won't take the time or even try to go through names with you. Not important at this point, but just say, just hear the distinctive. These particular Baptists are known as, part, as particular Baptists. They believe the gospel is only to certain particular people. Um, it simplifies it tremendously, but it's the way I think of it often, is the limited atonement doctrine basically makes salvation a lottery-winning position. You know, Christ died, hope you're one of the ones to be saved. You know, that's, that's about the best they can do. And again, try not to crawl in the weeds too much. But you'll, you'll know these Baptists as particular Baptist, Reformed Baptist, which is a term also used in other denominations like Presbyterians, which typically tend out to always be Calvinist, um, and other denominations who use that term Reformed. Covenant is another term for them. And the Primitive Baptist will, will take this. But again, there's other distinctions that make some of those distinctions, but Primitive Baptists will typically fall in this camp also. So again, that's one of those things that you find Baptists still kind of tugging and pulling on with each other. Now, does it separate us um, necessarily? No, it does not. You will find Baptists make their positions, and there's plenty of, there's plenty of uh, Calvinist Baptists that I am glad to read their materials and hear their sermons. Um, but I'm, certainly not getting, I'm not going to the same side of the boat as they are when it comes to rowing the boat uh, with that discussion. So there's a lot of... Again, ongoing discussion, and uh, it's been going on for a long time. So what does it mean to be a Baptist in general terms? I want to finish here very quickly. Uh, there are many acrostics. Maybe some of you have seen them. They're using the word Baptist, there's several varieties. I'm going to give you my variety, the one I like best, and that is you take each of the words related to something like Baptist, and you say, here's the essentials. As a Baptist, I believe in biblical authority. You know, any statement that's made from this pulpit, from any of us who preach, is going to be substantiated by what's in the Bible. We are not going to quote church fathers of the second century as a place to get doctrine. They may say something very similar to what we believe, but we're not putting our emphasis upon what a church father said of the second century. We're putting it on God's Word, right? That's, I mean, that's where we are as Baptists. 
That's why when you read our doctrinal statement, the very first item it addresses is the authority of Scripture and the place of the Bible. And I think you'll find that true among Baptist churches across both, um, both doctrinal positions of general or particular. So biblical authority. The autonomy of the local church. We're independent. We're not run by an organization over us. There's no hierarchical structure that says to us you have to do this or do that with your personnel or with your positions or with your facilities. You know, um, it's ours. We own it and we take responsibility for it. The autonomy of the local church. It also means there's no involvement with church and state, which we'll get to in a moment too. The priesthood of the believer. That's a great position. It basically says we have access to God individually. I do not have to go through someone who is ordained as a priest to get my prayers answered before the Lord or taken before the Lord. I certainly don't pray to, to dead apostles. and I don't pray to dead popes. and I don't pray to Mary, right? That's the priesthood of the believer. We all have a biblical capacity, a biblically described capacity to take our prayers directly to the Lord. Two ordinances, right? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Again, others will add to that maybe. There's, a few, there's some Baptists who will put foot washing in that discussion. Maybe not as an ordinance, but as an activity of, of common practice. That's okay. I have a problem with that. But that's our two ordinances that we always adhere to. Individual spiritual liberty, sometimes called individual soul liberty. That basically means that you and I are responsible for ourselves. My salvation in Christ is dependent upon me making a profession. Not because I went through a set of religious events or religious activities, and I certainly don't, you know, pull family members along with me into salvation. It's individual responsible. And then beyond that, it's also individual conscience. Your, 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 your conscience has the ability to make choices within those biblical guidelines. Another way that's applied. Separation of church and state. Again, there's no king over the church. There's no president. There's no government authority over the church. The church rules and reigns in, independently of that. That created a lot, of the, a lot of the fury during COVID, right? The government says you can't. And, and churches saying, we, no, we can't. You know, you separate those two. That's, again, another issue. You're getting the weeds too quick with that. Two ordained church offices. The pastor and the deacon are the only ordained church offices. And again, that's based upon biblical um, accuracy. There are other church offices that are just not ordained. Trustees are church offices, but they're not ordained. Um, other, other positions and other places will go with that. Immersed after confession membership. That a person becomes a member of a church after they've made a public profession in Christ and after they've been baptized. And you will often, if you pay attention, if you, if you hear for enough baptisms, you'll often hear this said. We're baptizing so-and-so, and they'll become members upon baptism. Or we're voting in someone pending baptism. Either one of those. But you've got to have the right order. Confession first, baptism second, membership third. So they go in an order. And then last, congregational polity. And that simply means the congregation decides how it's going to run itself. If we're independent, we have to have a, we have to have a way to exercise our policy 
That's what polity is. The idea of how do we exercise? Who's in charge? How do you run business meetings? How do you conduct? Who has the authority to do this decision? Who has authority to do that decision? You know what? That'll be very different. Not necessarily greatly different, but it could be different between Baptist church to Baptist church. And, uh, and, and I know it's true in some of the churches in our area. They don't do it just like us. We don't do it just like them. But you know what? It works for us. And if there's anything that needs to be changed, we address that. All that being said, I come to this conclusion as we close. May we be Baptist of conviction and not Baptist of convenience. Somewhat a personal opinion here. What's the worst Baptist in the world? It's a, it's a crazy question on that. What's the worst Baptist in the world? The one who doesn't know why they're a Baptist. Or they give all the wrong answers to why they're a Baptist. Uh, well, I don't know. My parents went there. Uh, I grew up at that church. It's the closest church to my house. Good answers, but not the right answer. The right answer is it's because it's a place where God's word is taught and preached, and it's a place where I can serve, and I can grow and mature in my faith. Right? It's a Baptist of conviction. But just to say all the other things, it's the closest Baptist church on the way to my favorite restaurant after church on Sunday, right? Wrong answers. There's just no conviction to those. So that's, that's what our goal is, to be Baptist of conviction, not Baptist of convenience. I'm afraid uh, that's a distinction that uh, some people need to think through for sure. Well, as we close tonight, I remind you, we are as a class supporting a great Baptist family and ministry in the South Pacific, the Appel family. And uh, they're, they're striving and working hard. Got an email from Jed um, just a couple of weeks ago telling about all the things that they're doing there and exciting to hear. And, and I wholeheartedly support the work they're doing. And thank you for those who have supported. We've had a box out there, and we'll continue to have that. In the month of May, when we do not have Bible study fellowships, if you want to if you want to make a donation to them, just write it the Appel family, and the, and the folks upstairs will know exactly how to handle that, and then we'll, we'll make sure it gets to them. Well, so we'll, we'll close off there, and we'll come back in June, on June 4th, and we're going we're gonna to go into the Old Testament, something we've not done in several years here, not so much because we don't, didn't mean to, just that kind of COVID threw wrenches in all of our planning, but uh, we're going to come back to the Old Testament, and good likelihood we may spend uh, June to November in the Old Testament. So um, go ahead, I'll give you a head start, start reading, and uh, we'll try to work our way through the material of the Old Testament um, in a survey course. I think it's a good time to, to look at that once again. This is a, a course, our, our study I did uh, more than about a dozen years ago, ten, a decade to a dozen years ago, uh, somewhere in that range. So it's a good time to come back to it, I think, and, and, and get us back into the Scriptures, which is where we like to be in our time together. Well, thank you again for being part of this study through many weeks and months, and uh, one of those things you we don't do very regularly, that's for sure, so I hope it's been a blessing to you. Um, and look forward to being back in June. I know lots of things are happening, so please keep up with the announcements. It May is just a busy month for lots of good things, and we're looking forward to that. In June, too, Vacation Bible School, and uh, talk about kids, right? Vacation Bible School, Father's Day in June, Mother's Day, of course, in May, Memorial Day. We're working on that. If you've been to our Memorial Day service, you know how, how uh, great they are. I just uh, appreciate them so much and the men who are involved in that. So we've got a lot of wonderful things ahead over the next couple of months for sure before we get into the, the throes of summer. Well, let's pray and we'll dismiss there. Father, thank you for our time uh, these many weeks now to study uh, some of the history of generations past. Uh, their convictions led them. Their convictions drove them. And I pray that we will have similar convictions in our hearts as we serve you, as we stand for the truth, as we have an opportunity to defend uh, in an unchristian world uh, what you have told us is 
the gospel message. And I pray that we'll be faithful to do that. Help us to, to be more and more Baptist of conviction. I pray that you'll bless our dismissal and our time tonight. Again, we thank you for the opportunity to share a little bit of our time to rem rem uh, re be reminded of this next generation coming up behind us. They will quickly fall in our footsteps. May we prepare them well. May we train them and teach them in your word that they will stand to their generation to be a voice for the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lord bless everyone. Have a great evening.